Welcome to Seek Justice, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the nuances of criminal justice. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Eric. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine. And you? Pretty good. Uh, I've been watching the news lately. There's with the high profile suicide of Jeffrey Epstein, the alleged but pretty certain pedophile um, that has connections to all the higher higher ups in society. He uh, he was put in jail and uh, managed to kill himself. All the articles like to say apparently died by suicide because there's all this conspiracy fluff, but I don't know that I believe any of that. Uh, and I wanted to talk to you about how much of a, how big of a problem this is of people killing themselves in, in, in jail. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Is it, and I mean, f- for sure, if you're about to be put away for life and put in, put in a, in a maximum security prison and everyone knows your name and what you did to children, uh, I can see how, you know, suicide is not the least logical thing you can do. But um, uh, how is it, is it the job of the, of, of the guards to, to prevent suicide? And uh, talk to me a little bit about... Um, yeah. Well, so a few a few points to to begin with. Let's just reiterate the difference between jails and prisons. Prisons being largely operated by state uh, state uh, governments, and jails largely being operated by local governments. Um, yes. And jails more long term compared to prisons. And jails, if they're run by a county or a parish, have two types of population in them: a pretrial population and a post-trial population. In the case of Jeffrey Epstein, he was in the Metropolitan Correctional Center, which is a lockup or a detention center for the federal system, mm-hmm. which is more akin to a local jail than it would be a local prison. And so with those distinctions made, then what I'm about to say, you know, generally about statistics and history will make better sense. So the major cause of death in prisons, which are longer term facilities, obviously, is illness. Mm-hmm. And that's because prisons uh, have housed in them a huge number of people compared to local jails, but they're there for a long period of time. It includes lifers, people who are in prison. Life at our parole, our episode, we interviewed Mark Maurer, uh, the meaning of life, uh, episode uh, 14 or 15, I think, and he talked a lot about that. And so we recognize, first of all, because of the distinction that in prisons, the number one cause of death is illnesses. The number one cause of death in jails is suicide. Mm-hmm. And so we start with this startling fact that is frankly, not totally being lost in the shuffle with the Epstein uh, uh, tragedy. Um, but um, is, is, is a fact. And so when you take a look at, uh, you know, the number of how many people die in jail every year, it's given that it's the number one cause and not that many people die in jail in the first place. There's in, in the ballpark of about 400 jail deaths a year, every year. And if you look at data from... 2000 to 2013, you'll see that that average results in over 4,000 deaths. So you got over the course of 13 years, you got 4,000 people die and you read about some of them, maybe some of the time, but suddenly we have this high profile guy and it's all in the news and everyone's just, oh my God. And you see an article that you can post in the notes here about uh, 
a journalist who's saying that other journalists should really start to use this as a reason to dig into the suicide rate in jails, et cetera. And it's going to be in this country just like it always is. This is going to go away. Nobody's going to do anything about it. And it's just right. like, you know, if we can't control automatic rifles when 90% of the voting public support it and there's the aftermath of yet another shooting and the Congress doesn't do anything about it, why would this matter when it's just right. 400 people a year who die and most of them are Epstein or somebody who's been associated historically with Trump or Clinton or any other people that he hung around with? So we start with these these facts that suicide in jail has been a pandemic for decades. And there is study after study after study. So that's number one. It's sort of like, yeah, okay, Epstein, he did it. And so, God, that's how could that happen? Mm -hmm. Well, wait a minute. It happens 400 times a year, number one. Number two, let's take a look at the MCC, the Metropolitan Correctional Center. All right, there's the U.S. Department of Justice and Amnesty International has been in there. And it is a rat-infested, bug-infested, dilapidated facility that apparently, according to people who've stayed there, is worse than Rikers Island, which everyone would recognize. More of the public would hear Rikers Island and say, oh, that's a bad place. That's fairly well known that that's the case. It's right. famous, infamous for how bad it is. This place reportedly is worse. One inmate who was interviewed said, look, it's not just like there's rats here. These are big rats. It, it seems like you're in a sewer when you're here. And it's not like they just come and go. They are your roommates. Oh, man. And so you've got a facility that if the conditions in there are bug-infested, rat-infested, why is it that way? It's underfunded. It's not managed well. It doesn't have enough staffing. So in a facility that's been recognized for quite a while as being dilapidated in, in way, way, way below constitutional standards, I'm not sure the degree that uh, lawsuits are active there, but I'm, I'm I would guess they would be. So let's take a look at this particular facility. Then when you scrape off the surface a little bit, and you say, oh, my God, why would it be surprising in an understaffed, dilapidated facility that the decision is made by someone that, yeah, you attempted suicide, you're on suicide watch. Well, I interview you, a psychologist interviews you, you're a smart guy. Mm -hmm. Epstein's a smart dude. How did he get away with this stuff all these years? Why? He's sure. smart. Yep. Is he smart enough to fool some dumbass psychologist who probably has got a caseload of 350 people who's got to spend 15 minutes with each of them. I don't know what the details are there. The investigation will show it. And so he fools them. Mm -hmm. Or maybe that particular day he didn't feel suicidal. And then the next thing you know, he says, you know, yeah. So why would a guy commit suicide? Number one, as you suggest, why would he commit suicide in jail? He's looking at a lot of a lot of time. He's looking at uh, a, a, a totally degrading, embarrassing, inappropriate expose of everything that he's been about. He's losing everything mm -hmm. that he has. His life is over as he knows it. And for him, he'd rather go into the deep unknown, apparently. Or maybe he thinks he knows what's on the other side. God only knows. But for him, it's a decision that he makes. It's not difficult to commit suicide in jail. It happens 400 times a year. It happens sure. 4,000 times. Here's the thing. You take a look at a city that's got 4,000 people. Let's take a look at Bloomington Hills, Michigan, which you may have heard of. is a, is a town, you know, small town. It's got a good, good amount of wealth. The average income U.S. is about $29,000. Average income in Bloomington Hills is a little under hundred grand. give you an idea. Wow. Okay. Let me tell you, 4,021 people or so live in Bloomington Hills. If every one of them committed suicide, maybe we'd pay attention. But one guy, Epstein, one guy out of... of 
thousands every couple of years, it isn't going to matter. Right. The conspiracy theories that come up here, it's just so much fodder for whether it's the right wing or the left wing, everybody jumping in. Left wing wants to, you know, I watch a clips of MSNBC and which I watch, which means that I obviously am not watching Fox. So I'm obviously on the liberal side of things. You've heard one of these podcasts, you know that. But MSNBC, they're showing, talking about Epstein, the pictures that they're showing of Epstein are a little video again and again and again and again of him, him being Trump greeted again. by Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. It's one meeting. They play it again and again. It's the only video they have. I scream into the television set, do you not have any other footage of Epstein? Do you not have any other pictures of Epstein? It's a, it's, it is such a uh, obvious, uh, you know, push, push toward the spotter of conspiracy there. And then on the right, well, I mean, uh, our news, our news is entertainment at this point, and the news organizations have figured that out. And this is ripe for, you know, spewing a uh, hundred thousand words to in, that are that are entertaining because you know just contemplating the uh, the possibility of you know you know Hillary Clinton having some secret agent in the in the in the correctional facility. Well, and so off this guy. I mean, come on. To the point of some of these conspiracy theories, you know, you if you know uh, who's the uh, uh, Daily uh, Show, Tre- uh, Trevor Noah. Trevor, yeah, Trevor Noah. So he's he did a little stick that you can post in the notes, and it was interesting the the way that he 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 described it. It got me to thinking. Well, so given the events that we know about publicly, at what point in time would somebody have been able to intervene in such a way? that it could have been, you know, a, a, a factor mitigating, a factor aggravating factor, however we would describe that with his death, with his suicide. And, and I concluded that it, the only kind of, just based on what little I frankly know about it, the investigation comes out, the one place where there could have been some influence would have been with the psychologist. Right. Who very well could have been on the take, let's say, to go ahead and take him off suicide watch and then let, Epstein do what Epstein was going to do anyway. I don't know. Maybe the news tell this. Do we know how he killed himself? Uh, yeah, I think it was um, with with bed sheets. Uh, Hung himself. Well, it was uh, it. He'd like tied them to the to the upper bunk, and apparently like threw himself forward in a way that like broke some of his neck bones, uh, and also was able to to hang himself. But yeah. Uh, because I, well, you know, well, in, 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 <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. That's you know, a bunk bed. If you, if, if you really want it, that's high enough for you to. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I'd have uh, you know one of the factors about you know suicides, potential suicides, is that the the, the, the person's going to think through to a certain degree what happens if this doesn't work. You right. know, you end up breaking your neck, you become paralyzed, and then you're in a worse shape than you were, and so. You know, you can imagine the degree of, of, of passion and, de, de, you know, how de, depraved he was to consider suicide by, you know, catapulting himself off a, off a bunk, right. you know. And, and, and so that's not exactly the type of suicide that somebody would come in and help him along, you know, and, and, and kind of thinking about the security levels in these jails. That's highly, highly unlikely. It, it would be more 
uh, you know, the question, the big question is why they take them off suicide watch. Who took them off suicide watch? I'm sure the investigation is going to come up with all sorts of issues that maybe some of which I've raised here is that you've got the psychologist, what degree of training does he have? Does he had other clients that have committed suicide? How long did he see Epstein? What type of instrumentation or tools did he use to determine the degree of suicide uh, potential, et cetera? You know, and then the other part of it is, so what does MCC actually do when somebody's on suicide watch? You know, in a facility right. like this, I can't imagine that the, even if there's a rule that says it has to be, a, you know, a 100% around-the-clock watch, that that happens. Well, I think what's just not going to happen. Been, it might have been the Trevor Noah clip where he, he where somewhere I heard that sometimes they will use other inmates to watch the suicide watch people uh, because they don't, they're understaffed. So, you know, they employ as we as we know it was yeah it was the clip in fact i did not like at all what he said showing uh uh, some ignorance on his part to say you know and what if the guy doing the suicide watch was a murderer yeah i thought that was a joke of it you know and you know here's the deal man murders are the safest bets for low recidivism rates they generally commit a crime of passion and they kill oftentimes their spouses or their loved ones Mm -hmm. maybe not so much in love with them at that particular moment but the, the data is very clear that they, they've got lower risk. And, you know, folks can, you know, switch back to the episode with Mark Morrow where he talks about some of the risk levels of people who are doing life in prison. But the the, the fact is, is and, and as you know, you can show the clip, too, uh, that uh, 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 Sunday uh, Sunday night last week, is that, do I have the name of that right? Uh, John, last uh, week tonight, John Oliver. Last John week Oliver, tonight. right, where, where he clips... A, uh, a talk that went viral by the uh, sheriff, the parish sheriff up in northern Louisiana, the Shreveport area, Caddo Parish. Uh, and I was there when I, I was in Louisiana when that uh, when that 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 uh, clip made its way and went viral in the state, and then it went viral nationally. But what the sheriff says, Sheriff Prater, is interesting. In this point, he says, you know, the the prisoners that they're going to let out under this new law are both bad prisoners that shouldn't be let out. And he went on about that. And he said, but they're also good prisoners. And the prisoners that we use around here to take out the garbage and clean the place, et cetera. I don't want uh, state prisoners, okay? They are a necessary evil to keep the doors open that we keep a few or keep some out there. And that's the ones that you can work. That's the ones that can pick up trash, the work release programs. But guess what? Those are the ones that they're releasing. In addition to the... In addition to the bad ones, and I call these bad, in addition to them, they're releasing some good ones that we use every day to, to wash cars, to change oil in our cars, to cook in the kitchen, to do all that where we save money. Well, they're going to let them out. To make the point here subtle, maybe almost a throwaway point, is that the type of prisoners that the sheriff is handling are both local jail prisoners but also state prisoners who are housed there because the state prison system doesn't have any room. Oh, wow. The state is paying. This, and this doesn't come out in John Oliver's clip. We ought to write him and tell him to get his shit together a little bit. But the, on this fact is that the reason Prater's upset is because these good guys, not only does he use them as trustees to do the work that trustees earn to do, which they love to do, because you, if you're in jail, you want to be busy. Sure. You want to sit and twiddle your thumbs all day in your cell, which is another reason suicide rate is high, right? Right. But he's getting paid, uh, you know, not very much given this daily cost, but it's a little less than $30 a day to keep these guys. So $30 a day, that's 365 days a year. 
This is what he's talking about. I'm losing not only the people, but I'm using the revenue. So couple this back to what Trevor Noah was saying about trustees, which I'm sure is true. He didn't use the word trustees. These are uh, secondary staff in jails. Mm -hmm. And the history of, particularly most recent history, past decade or two of jail operations, and this is true everywhere, a jail cannot, cannot be kept clean, cannot function without the use of prisoner labor. You can't. It's impossible. There's not nearly enough staff. And so that's another factor that we can take into account here. But if you're on a suicide watch and that's part of your job and you plan an inmate there and you go through shifts and these are trustees who've earned the trust. Right. That's why they're called trustees. And in fact, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they did. You know, you don't judge someone by the right. biggest mistake of their life itself. By one action. Yeah. And if what the role of the suicide watcher is, is to say, OK, there's trouble here. Click a button, yell out a call, pick up the phone, hit a buzzer, whatever. Anybody can do that. And these guys. Right realistically have to be counted on perhaps to be able to do this. And so that's not a throwaway issue. And that isn't, uh, it may come up in the investigation and maybe at MCC, it wasn't done well. And maybe the inmates that were used, if it's even true, were perhaps not as trustworthy. I mean, one of the ways to consider the trustworthiness of an inmate, uh, a jail inmate or a state uh, prisoner or federal prisoner is to take a look at their compliance their degree of compliance to rules and regulations in the prison. You'll find that trustees cannot be trustees unless they're ticket free. Right. And so you're dealing with people that are that are, you know, going along to get along. The other thing to, to tie this and that maybe this is going too long in this particular point, but the notion of a longer term prisoner like a murderer being somehow engaged in the operations of, of the facility, you know, consider this and and, and, and think about a place like uh, you know, longer longer term prisons like Angola down in Louisiana that we've talked about a little bit. You've got 3,000, 4,000 prisoners there that are never going to be released. They're going to die in prison and they know it. Mm-hmm. This is where they live. Right. They create a community there. They're the ones that are significantly motivated to try to work with the young inmates who are there for short term, which are usually the source of most of the difficulties mm-hmm. of management and try to mentor them and guide them and keep things on the cool because if there are eruptions caused by these younger prisoners, all the prisoners will suffer. Mm-hmm. Lockdowns will happen, deprivations will occur, et cetera. And so these men, largely men, who are there for the rest of their lives, in their cells, with their books, with their papers, their whole life, right? Mm-hmm. Trusted, doing the work, teaching, mentoring, maybe a peer, uh, peer counseling under the supervision of a psychologist that's got way too many cases, that's part of a deeper examination about what may be happening that's right here. And so to tie that into this, I think, is, is a bit uh, insulting to the, to, to the depth that one should take. And Trevor Noah should be taken to task for that. So I'm sure you'll write him along with John Oliver and, and wag your finger at him. But again, John Oliver and Trevor Noah are entertainers and... They, it's their job to find something to to make jokes about, but but it's true. They're only a little bit more entertaining than Fox. <laughs> They're yeah. really, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, and and you know, and frankly, as I've grown accustomed to MSNBC and seen them also move so far uh, to the left in the in the in the the, the yeah the the fact that 
you know, my favorite newscaster, Ari Melber on MSNBC, in the beginning of his show when it first started, he was much more neutral, much more journalistic. And now he reasonably, in my mm -hmm. view, has become so convinced, of course, from the facts we have that Trump is a lunatic, that he's not he's not neutral. Frankly, I don't know how anybody could be, but mm -hmm. it's an opinion show and it's driven by opinion. And and and, yeah. and he's the best at it of anybody. You know, you can you can take a look at all the MSNBC newscasts and it's all about the same thing. Fox is no different. CNN is is terrible as well. The only place you can get what I consider to be unopinionated factual news is in public television. And when you get it, they're, they're, listen, man, they're dispassionate. So when I switch to the channel, it's boring compared to what I'm hearing on these other places. And if they're going to report on these, um, these, uh, uh, you know, these rumors and these conspiracy theories and whatnot, they'll report on them objectively and they'll say, well, this is what the, this is what the rumor is. This is what the, the, the theory is. These are the facts against it. Let's interview a couple people from both sides instead of, you know, just going on and on about their own opinion, which is going to support, which is what the other news channels do. The extreme in that direction is something that the BBC suffers from, where they, in order to maintain their neutrality, they insist on having someone from both sides of a story, both sides of an issue. And they, but they do it, it, what they end up making the mistake of is it makes it look like people are divided 50-50 on a particular thing, like something like global warming, for example, or climate change, as we call it these days. Uh, like if you're going to you're going to both sides of that you're you're not really staying. It's you're not giving it the proper one side has more weight on that than, than the other or et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. And you would think that the, the, the setup for the interviews could very well lead into that. Um, but oftentimes they don't. Back to this this issue with Epstein as well, you know the so now what we're focusing on is his death. Okay, isn't that great? How about the focus on what he was doing for his entire adult life? And well, that that's the that's what my favorite that was my favorite point that Trevor Noah made was, yeah, this is a conspiracy theory. The conspiracy is how he was able to yeah, do this right. so long, and that's what needs to be investigated because literally. There were, you know, how all conspiracies theories are involved, you know, just the upper echelons of government and, and wealthy people around the world being in control of something. That's literally what, what happened here is the wealthiest people uh, were were enabling him to, to do these well, things. Allegedly, so, allegedly. And now the, the, you know, the guilt by association sure. only goes so far. I mean, if, if you've got a, a sociopath um, or a psychopath, let's say a sociopath, which is harder to detect. Um, then the people that are associating with that sociopath will have no idea the person's a sociopath because they fit right in. And it's their private life that uh, is the remarkable part of, of, of their existence. And so because I know a sociopath and I hang out with a sociopath and then the sociopath ends up uh, being a serial killer, just because I know that sociopath doesn't mean that I was somehow involved in that serial killing. Now, I, I don't want to go you know, much deeper into that whole, whole approach here, but you know, where you see that, that, you know, Epstein's list of, of, and you go through news clips, which is what a lot of the stuff is based on because it's all imagery and you see him with the royalty, you know, British royalty. I don't know who he was hanging with and what it was. Well, it's like, so what does that mean? 
So he was a wealthy individual, you know. That's what that's what, bil- that's what billionaires do is they hang out with with other billionaires. Other billionaires, yeah, you uh, know, so, or or so called right. billionaires. In the case of Trump, a, a millionaire who lies about being right. a millionaire and saying he's a, a billionaire. Or in the case of Bill Clinton, who uh, wasn't even a thousandaire until he became a millionaire by cashing in uh, after his his uh, his presidency and in in, in in turning it into a, a money making machine for he and his. Uh, he and his uh, spouse who ended up, uh, as you know, uh, becoming equally uh, famous in so many ways. But, but so what, you know? And and so right. what about the what about the issue of you know, uh, uh, you know, sex, sex for sale and pedophilia for sale, and you know the the entire trafficking, yeah, uh, astounding uh, facts of this. This has been going on forever, forever. And the lack of attention, mm-hmm. you know, it, you look back at some of the, the history of this country and, and, and think about, you know, the AIDS epidemic and how long it took the country to, to, to even take that seriously. You know, in, in the, mm-hmm. the capability of our society to turn their to turn their eyes and turn their head away and act like it doesn't happen. I mean, go all the way back to the Holocaust if you, you want to consider some of these things. I mean, and so this 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 is aggravating, you know. God knows I don't deserve to be aggravated about something this serious, but but it's all about all right. So this is a newsworthy thing, and it's a flashy thing, and for a hot minute, it's going to be an issue, right? You know, and while journalists may call on other journalists to investigate, investigate, investigate until you're damn blue in the face. We got report after report after report right. after report. It's already been investigated. It's been investigated. It's terrible. You want? It's real simple. Jails have to have more money. Where do they get the money? They get the money from mm-hmm. taxpayers. How do they get the taxpayers' money? They have to get it from taxes. That's all there is to it. You want to have jails that don't yep. have such a high suicide rate? You got to have better supervision, better medical staff, better psychiatric staff. You've got to have better conditions. You don't want people to kill themselves in jail. That don't let them room with rats and bugs. Don't make it the most depraved place where suicide becomes a better option. These are the things that have to happen. They're mm-hmm. not going to happen. They're not going to happen. This is going to pass just like it always passes. That's why this will be a short episode. I'm sorry I'm so cynical about it, but it's it's just I've seen it again and again and again and again. It's just a flash in the pan. Well, that's uplifting. As always. <laughs> the, um, I, I, was, I was looking through some of these uh, stats that you sent me that I'll put in the show notes. And uh, a lot of the suicides are from people with uh, drug addiction problems. And uh, other and, and then a bunch, a bunch more are from people with mental illness. As we've mentioned several times, there's a lot of mental illness that plays a role in the in the justice system. But that, uh, and that there's there's apparently problems with people that are mentally ill that need their medication to stay on the level uh, where their medication is denied when they're when they're in jail. That's a particularly bad problem. There's a Wisconsin sheriff quoted as saying. Um, if uh, if inmates are taking psychotropic drugs, then we have a moral and ethical responsibility to continue them. Like if you if you need your medication, it's it's cruel and unusual to take your medication away from you. Well, and think about too when you when you when you dig into the the uh, statistics on mortality in uh, local jails. There's a report um, October 26, 2010, mortality local jails 2000 to 2007. You can linked to and you're looking at the reason for the deaths and it's very clear that you've got people that are in jail who go into jail very unhealthy to begin with not only uh, mental illness and uh, drug addiction mm-hmm. but also terrible ill health it's no uh, secret uh, in this country 
that does not have universal health care, that people who don't have any money are some of the sickest people in the world in this country. And uh, the data is just 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 mm -hmm. just numbs you uh, when you consider it. And so you look at these things and, you know, you realize that it's just it, 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 it's such a, a plethora of problems all associated with with the justice system from beginning to end. You know, one of the things I'd like to do in an upcoming uh, podcast is take a look at uh, some of these um, presidential Democratic uh, nominee uh, aspiring uh, presidential candidates um, and their mm -hmm. criminal justice reform plan. I glanced at, at Bernie Sanders, you know, and, and just saw the highlights of it and then closed it because I, I started chuckling and, and, and didn't want to ruin my, my morning coffee. But, you know, he's saying, you know, we, we want to end the bail in, in, in the jails and we want to end this and we want to end that. And it's like, yeah, Bernie, I'm sure that you want to end that. Tell me how you're going to do that. Give me, give me your plan of action. Right. Give me, give me some. Well, that's dates, what candidates Bernie. say. You know, and I'll take a look at Joe Biden's, which I'm sure is going to be uh, much more uh, tame than anything Bernie would would give. And it's it, to me, it's a, mm -hmm. it's kind of laughable that uh, Biden is suddenly on the bandwagon for reforms, where he, uh, throughout his career, was uh, voting yes, yes, yes for all sorts of very debilitating things that drove the prison population. If you want to see his record, take a look at how he voted for Bill Clinton's. Uh, omnibus crime bill that was more responsible for a explosion in the prison system than uh, than any president in, in, in U.S. history, you know, and that's Joe Biden now saying, yeah, well, I've changed, et, et cetera. Well, you know, I want to know, give me dates, give me plans, give me hows, give me who's, who's going to do what when to Bernie to end bail or Joe to, you know, to, to, to decrease the number of uh, lower level nonviolent people that are in jails or prisons, which I always get a kick out of you know, uh, nonviolent. I don't even know what that means. Hmm. You know, everyone confuses this with, you know, somebody who's in jail for stealing something is a nonviolent offender. Yeah. Well, look at his record. He may have beat his wife up, you know, 20 times and been convicted of, you know, robbery and assault and every other thing, but they're nonviolent. And then take a, a guy who's never done anything wrong before in his life and gets drunk and gets in an altercation in a bar and somebody's hospitalized or, or killed over it. Maybe not any problem ever in his life. And he's a violent offender. Well, it's all bullshit. And so this, the, the degree of, of specificity right. that you see, none of this stuff is ever going to come to pass. It doesn't matter who's in the president's seat. They can push and they can pull. But at the end of the day, jails particularly, these are, these are, not, these are not state problems. Even. These are local jurisdiction problems. In the case of the MCC, a detention, it is a federal thing, a federal uh, operation. And so mm -hmm. the president, in fact, the Bureau of Prisons that uh, I suspect runs it, I don't know if it's under contract or, or, or what, um, can be held uh, responsible for, for improvements and whatnot. And we can look at the history and see whether MCC has actually taken any steps over time to improve their conditions. And, you know, I don't know how old the report was that I, that I read. I thought it was pretty recent. Um, but, you know, you want to you get, a, you get a, a, an idea of just how frequently uh, jails are cited as being unconstitutional. Just go to the ACLU's website or Amnesty International and read what they're saying, jurisdiction after jurisdiction. Look, it is not the exception to the rule. Mm -hmm. These places are not run well. They can't be run well because they don't have the staff and they don't have the resources. They're constantly getting cut. Why are they getting cut? Partly because the media sensationalizes crime. If it bleeds, it leads. Mm -hmm. And if you just watch the news, you're going to be so angry at anybody who's ever broken the law, you're never going to support any increase in funding to try to make certain that these folks are kept safe from harm in our in constitutional conditions or even treated humanely. 
they're not treated humanely. Yep. You wouldn't lock a dog up. You can't go to a dog kennel. There's going to be rats in a dog kennel. They won't allow it. And yet here we are. So, you know, I've got a few opinions about it. This article, the, uh, and the Department of Justice is quoted as saying that um, the two primary causes for jail suicide are the jail environments are conducive to, to suicidal behavior, you know, like these rats we're talking about. And the other is that the inmate is facing a crisis situation. And from the inmate's pr- perspective, certain features of the jail environment enhance suicidal behavior, fear of the unknown, distrust of authoritarian environment, and the perceived lack of control over the future. Isolation from family and and significant others, shame of incarceration, and perceived dehumanizing of the... Which, which, which of course, we've known, you look at the dates of some of these studies, we've known this for decades. The suicide rate's gone up, it hasn't gone down. Mortality rate has gone up, it hasn't gone down. This has been going on, we've, we've known this just for 30, 40, 40 years, and it gets worse and worse and worse. And the politicians that are running the budgets at the local jurisdiction, they're not voting for this stuff. Yep. The people are not supporting millages to, in, in, you know, in, in Kalamazoo here, uh, we had, I think, millages failed several times to try to increase the size of the jail, which was notoriously uh, overcrowded and small. You know, people just don't care. And the media sensationalizes it and, 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 and helps people conclude that they don't care, helps push them in that particular direction. You know, I, 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 it's, you know it's, uh, right. it's, 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 it's not surprising. And you watch. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at this six months from now and we'll see if it's still on anybody's radar screen. Next month, this will no longer be talked about. One thing that Trump is really, really good at is making you forget what you were mad about yesterday, because every single day he comes out with a new thing that infuriates you, and we just don't have the attention span to still be mad about whatever we were upset about last week. Yes. And... Yes. As as a nation, we have our heads stuck in the sand, and this Epstein thing may be just one moment for us to pull our head out of the sand and shake it around, but it's going to take another hot minute and we'll stick our head right back in the sand again, because that's where we would prefer to be. And there isn't anybody that wants to take on these issues. Yeah. There's going to be nobody. Well, there's people that want to, but, but not, not the, not the, the, the politicians. I mean, if, if, you know, you've got, you've got leadership in the federal government, you don't have to rely on a Trump. Mm-hmm. You can go to the Bureau of Prisons, talk to the head of the Bureau of Prisons and say, so what are you going to do about it? Take a look at the con- if it's a contract with MCC, who's the contract monitor? Right. There's a trail here. You know, we ran a, we had a, uh, we had a prison here in, uh, in, uh, uh, in, in Michigan. It was a, a private prison. The only private prison in the state was a juvenile facility. The attempted suicide rate for juveniles was sky high. And, and I think we talked about this in a prior episode. Well, whose fault was that? The, when I started working for the department, it was like, well, you know, the Department of Corrections mm-hmm. or, you know, the, the vendor, uh, GEO, the, the corporate uh, profiteer off, uh, off of uh, incarceration. You know, everyone's upset about GEO this and GEO that. And I said, that's nonsense. It's not GEO's responsibility. It's our responsibility to create a contract that's tight mm-hmm. and to monitor the contract. That's on us. You know, and so you've got to determine the, the accountability. And in this case, who's the, if, uh, I don't, well, we could find out whether MCC is a contract facility or actually run by BOP, but either way, there's somebody in charge of it. Right. And somebody who's known about these abuses and known about these conditions forever. They're the folks that should be taken to task. That's not a hard thing to do. That's what can happen in a bureaucracy. These are personnel issues. Is anybody going to be taken to task for this? Has anybody resigned or quit or been fired? Is the psychologist still on? I mean, who knows? 
you know, mistakes are made and, and, you know, the higher up you are, you look lower and you say, well, somebody's head's got to roll below me before it gets to my head. Mm-hmm, right. And then you could announce, you know, that you solve the problem. The story I, I may have told, you know, the, the, the governor of Alaska, the, uh, working in Alaska, Governor Walker, I believe his name was, he, uh, they had a spate of deaths in their unified system, meaning jails and prisons are all run by the Department of Correction and they're called detention facilities. Some are actually more like jails and some are actually more like prisons. You can easily identify them, but they had an average, don't quote me, but I think it's about eight deaths a year, uh, statistics that had been true for a decade. And in the particular year that, is, that I'm thinking of here a couple of years ago, they had those deaths early in the year and they kind of all happened at once. And they happened under the under the, the auspices of the director of corrections then, his name was Schmidt. And um, when the new governor came in, Schmidt was let go. And the new uh, fellow came in, uh, Secretary Taylor, was held responsible for the deaths that took place, even though they didn't, only but two of them took place under his watch. Right. And statistically, he wasn't particularly out of kilter. Well, when the governor held a press conference, and you can find this clip, it's fascinating. When he held the press conference and announced that uh, Taylor uh, was, was, was leaving, I think he was asked to resign, and somebody asked a question in the audience, but these happened, they didn't happen under his watch. Why, why is he being dismissed? And the governor said, well, somebody's got to lose their job over this. Yeah, and it ain't going to be me. And he might as well have finished and saying, it ain't going to be me. Well, it was him. He didn't win re-election. I'm not even clear <laughs> what happened to him politically. He was a, uh, in, uh, he was a uh, Republican that went independent mm-hmm. and then convinced his opponent on the Democratic side, uh, Alaska Native, uh, who was running for governor to become his lieutenant governor. And then because they took the ticket, um, they won the election. It was short-lived. Uh, and I'm sure the Republicans, <laughs> the Democrats, will never deal with either of these two guys again. But it, it's interesting that even even when you're in a political situation where you don't have much of a future, and Walker knew as soon as he got in, he'd probably be a one-term governor, he didn't take any different approach. He wasn't any bolder or more courageous. you know. And so where do you look for this type of leadership to really take hold? If it's jails, it's going to be at the county or the parish level. If it's uh, state prisons, it's going to be at the, the gubernatorial, the corrections director's level. If it's federal facilities, it's going to be in the Bureau of Prisons and then and then at the cabinet level, perhaps. But at the end of the day, there's no shortage of people that can do something about this. And the, the question isn't what is the president going to do or what isn't Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or or uh, my guess would be if if uh, if um, uh, uh, Warren has put out a plan, it's probably the best plan because her plans are better than anybody else's because she's so damn thoughtful and, and serious about it. Right. But it's not going to be coming from that. It's going to be from the oversight that they have down the chain, mm-hmm. down the chain, right to the people that are running these facilities. And people have to listen to them. When they say we don't have enough staff, our psychologists are spread thin. We have judges that are sending substance abusers, mentally ill, co-occurring disorders into the jail so that they can get services because they can't get them on the street. That's what we have to listen to. That's what we have to respond to. This gets down to local stuff, local stuff. If we took 10% of the defense budget and put it into the prisons, would that help? I mean, clearly we need money and staff and stuff, but is it, is it just about money? No, no, no. no. Is it also about this, this, this political perception that, that, that the public has of, these people are bad and don't don't deserve any. It's it's all it's all the above. I mean, it, it, it's all the above. I mean, first of all, the the, the rather socialist uh, idea here that we would somehow, you know, reduce the the, the defense budget, which of course <laughs> has no bloat, 
in it whatsoever. I'm just shocked that you'd <laughs> recommend that. Uh, but, you know, take a look at the number of dollars that are there. Sure. I mean, that would be huge. But it isn't just about money. It's also about accountability measures and performance standards. And so if you're going to spend money, you've got to spend it well, you know, and you've got to spend it on the things that matter. But that's what accountability, fiscal accountability is all about. You know, you want to look at uh, measures of fiscal accountability at the state level when you see that a budget bill is being promulgated that's got, you know, increased expenditures that don't make any sense. The Senate and House fiscal agencies in that state that are charged with doing, you know, professional fiscal analysis will tell you whether the money is going to be spent well or not or whether the history of oversight of spending is sufficient. That stuff's all there. It's just ignored. Right. So often, you know, and, and, and you know, there are exceptional states and there's exceptional leaders. I think I've been very impressed with some of the candidates that are running uh, for president or up until last week running for president. I don't know if uh, Jay Inslee from Washington State is trapped out yet. I mean, he eventually... Uh, will, uh, but some of the stuff he's done in Washington as a governor is remarkable. It's just remarkable, and it shows what a guy can do. And having worked in Washington, hoping to work there again, he has very specific accountability measures that he holds his cabinet to. Nice. And they have to report on it. And it's a business approach. That's what happens when we put businessmen into office. They often can do that. I've got examples where that didn't happen so much. Governor Snyder here in Michigan, who was a business person, uh, didn't exactly manage things like a business. He wouldn't be put in front of a, you know, in charge of a business that managed water departments, for example, given the Flint uh, crisis and his rather obvious to me, a personal responsibility for not being aware of that uh, to the degree you believe that he wasn't aware of it and what he did about it. But there's just good examples of, of, of smart, accountable leadership all over the place. It just is, you know, it, it's interesting to me that it's exceptional when you hear about it. Right. Because the bar is so low. The bar is so low. And, and we as activist citizens have been uh, absolutely asleep at the wheel. If Trump's done anything to improve the potential of our future here, it is that he is waking up the ap- apathetic uh, woke. liberals. <laughs> right. We, we are woke. We are woke. When Elizabeth Warren tapped Stacey Abrams to be her vice presidential candidate, look out. Look out. Another thing, going back to suicide, is another reason why suicide is, seems like such a good option is because of all these things that we've talked about episode after episode of the really harsh sentences and not trying to divert people out of prisons. If you know that you're in a criminal justice apparatus that where basically we will lock you up and throw away the key, if you know how harsh all the sentences are and how shitty your life is going to be in in prison uh what do you have to look forward to yeah listen man consider consider a 36 year old um african-american man who's been in prison three or four times since he was 21 years old is arrested and put into jail and uh is guilty of something that had to do with the crime regardless of what he's going to plea bargain to is going to be charged with and ever since he did his first prison stay when he was raped repeatedly in prison He's uh, had uh, the worst possible life, mentally ill, mental illness, substance abuse, co-occurring disorder, economic depravity, no ability to, to, you know, homeless, you know, every now often he gets put into a jail cell. He's looking at a serious crime and he knows that if he moves from that jail cell into the state prison, he's likely to become a punk again and get raped again. Uh, You know, give me a break here. What is shocking about this? You know what's shocking? That more people don't kill themselves in jail. You know, it's, what what do you expect to happen 
you know, the science of it that you quote in your reading of the uh, what Department of Justice reports say about the debilitating factor of the, the jail environment and, and, and on and on. I mean, go beyond that and look at the, the, the likelihood, look at the number of rapes that are reported in prison and know that probably only one out of every 10 or so are reported. I mean, this is, the, it, it, it's, it's a shameful, it's a shameful system from beginning to end. And while I'm throwing water on Bernie, you know, Sanders for, you know, being, you know, out the top of it in, in La La Land, you know, good for him to to try to raise issues to it. But I'm looking for a little balance here in terms of, you know, realistic plans and, and what are you actually going to do about it in, in, in your seat? You know what I want to hear from these Democrats running for president? How are you going to get the votes in the Senate you need to be able to get any of this stuff done? They don't even talk about it. It's never been talked about in the debates. They're not going to have a majority yep. in the Senate. They're going to get anything mm-hmm. done unless it's bipartisan. And they're running, of course, as partisans. Because they have to, because that's the way the system works. Because Yes. We need to change the Senate if we want to change things. So anyway, I'm, I'm glad that I helped you in your morning, uh, you know, feel uplifted and uh, positive and uh, motivated to have just a great day. Thank you very much, Dennis. This has been really, really depressing. <laughs> Talk to you next time. All right. Bye, man. For listening. If you like what you've just heard, you can support us by telling a friend or sharing us on social media. All of our episodes can be found on our website, seekjustice.fm. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we can be reached at seekjusticefm at gmail.com or via our Twitter account at seekjusticefm. See you next week.